God and our Heavenly Father, it's at the cross that we see this incredible love that you have for us, just lavished on us, poured out when you gave your Son to be the one who took our place, the one who bore our sins. And Father, we see that as a confirmation. God loves us. We thank you for giving us your word. We pray that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, help us. Um, Father, may it be you who speak. Father, we know that you want to communicate to us. You have things that you want to say, and we just pray that you would be glorified in what is presented this morning. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So please be seated. I hope you're enjoying the uh, summer. I promise... For those of you who have recently moved to Houston, it does get cooler, eventually. <laughs> it may feel like that's never going to happen, but, but it does. Okay, so uh, we're going to be looking at John chapter 7. So I would encourage you, there should be Bibles in your pew or if you brought one with you. So just go ahead and turn there and, and put your finger there. But we're going to go actually back to chapter 5 because we need to set the context for what we're going to discuss here in chapter 7. So, going back to chapter 5, okay, what do we see in chapter 5? Well, in chapter 5, the Lord Jesus goes to a pool named Bethesda, and there he heals a man who was invalid for about 30, 38 years. When the Jews find out, Jews are those folks that are opposing the Lord Jesus, they accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath law. So, what's Jesus' response to this accusation? He says this, John chapter 5, verse 19, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And then also John chapter 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So this response just aggravates the Jews and it ends up intensifying the persecution. Uh, in addition to Sabbath breaking, they accuse him of blasphemy because he is calling God his father, essentially making himself equal with God. You can see that in verse 18. Um, being sent by God and doing the will of God are prevalent and recurring themes uh, in the Gospel of John, certainly in the first couple of chapters. And in this chapter, what we're going to see is the Lord Jesus presents these things as strong arguments for the validity and divine origin of his teaching. And that's really the point here. Where does his teaching come from? And that's what we're going to focus on. So at the start of chapter 7, as we've said, uh, by that time, the, the persecution, the opposition has intensified to the point that the Jews are actually planning to kill him. They're looking for an opportunity to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. So how is the Lord Jesus going to respond to this intense opposition? We looked at the first couple of uh, verses in chapter 7 in the previous weeks. If we were to just look at those verses, you might get the impression uh, that, that he is intimidated in some way. Okay? He does not go up initially to the feast and when he does, he doesn't go up publicly. You can certainly understand if the Lord Jesus 
focus the remainder of his ministry in Galilee, but he doesn't do that. He isn't going to give up on the Jews. He responds with very powerful truth. So let's go ahead and and start reading John chapter 7. But when it was now the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple area and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, not having been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or if I am speaking of myself. The one who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did Moses not give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why are you seeking to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all are astonished. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and even on a Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on a Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry at me because I made an entire man well on a Sabbath? Do not judge by the outward appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. All right, so before we dig into this passage, I want to give you what I consider to be the three main takeaways from this passage. So the first takeaway, Jesus' teaching isn't human opinion, philosophy, or commentary. It is 100% directly from the Father. And this has some very serious implications. The second takeaway is we can be absolutely confident, we can be sure that Jesus' teaching is from God. Jesus promises two assurances, both an internal private one and an external public one. We'll talk about that. And then the third takeaway is we need to stop judging or really condemning uh, by external appearances and instead use righteous judgment. So we're going to take a look at all three of those this morning. Now, it's important to note, if you look through chapter 7, you don't see any miracles, okay, which is different than chapters 5 and 6. Um, there's no miracle during the entire period of the Feast of Boots with the tabernacles. That's the, pe- that's the period that's covered by John chapter 7, and there's no miracles that are done there during that whole feast. The focus... Lord Jesus' focus during that time is the teaching, okay? But you might ask, well, there's this intense persecution that's going on. He knows the Jews want to kill him. Why go up and teach? Why why take that risk, right? Well, teaching is the heart of his ministry. The miracles are there. They provide confirmation of his identity, of, of who he is, But the teaching is the main thing. And so regardless of the opposition, he has to continue teaching. He must continue teaching. He will continue teaching. This is the mandate that he has received, the stewardship that has been entrusted to him by his father, and he is going to discharge that responsibility faithfully and sacrificially. He's going to discharge that. 
You know, as believers, we shouldn't overlook the example of the Lord Jesus here. We cannot give up presenting the truth just because people are not willing to receive it or because they oppose it. Uh, Certainly, we may not be as eloquent or as effective as the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also have a stewardship that has been entrusted to us And we need to find ways to communicate the truth to others. Now, the Apostle John doesn't record for us exactly what was taught. We don't even receive kind of a summary or a synopsis. But he does record the response of the Jews. Take a look there at verse 15. The Jews were astonished, it says. That word astonished there is also translated to wonder or to admire, or to marvel. So, so they were impressed by the Lord's teachings, but they were not willing to accept that he came up with that teaching himself. And that's why they're asking this question. Now, you can understand why. In their experience, the only people that they were aware of who would have the depth of understanding that was required to present the kind of teaching that the Lord Jesus was presenting were the rabbis or their disciples who had spent years in theological schools. But they knew that Jesus was not affiliated with any of those rabbinical schools. He was not the disciple of a rabbi. But that question there, how has this man become learned? Okay? It reveals a fundamental flaw in the assumption that the Jews, that the Jews were making. They were assuming that this teaching that was being provided was gradually developed over time through years of study and learning. Now, the Lord very quickly corrects this assumption with a very honest and powerful response. He says, my teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. So Jesus denies ownership of the teaching, and he makes it clear that it was not developed gradually through study, It originates from and belongs to the Father, and it was entrusted to the Lord Jesus to proclaim to the Jews or to the the people of Israel. The Greek word here that's translated sent is the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. We'll take a look at that. It says this, These twelve, speaking of the, the apostles and disciples, Jesus sent out after instructing them, say, do not go on a road to the Gentiles, do not enter a city of the Samaritans, and so on. That word sent is the sense of being entrusted with something to take to others. Okay? So the twelve were representatives. They were given the responsibility and the authority to speak on behalf of the Lord Jesus. In the same sense, the Lord Jesus is God's representative, given the authority to speak on his behalf and act on his behalf. Now, this is not an unsubstantiated claim. The miracles and the ministry that the Lord Jesus was doing was proof that he had, in fact, been sent by God. Now, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, very early in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, acknowledged this when he spoke to the Lord Jesus, and he said, we know, we know, we're confident that you are a teacher come from God. Bible.org says this, 
Jesus' teaching often surprised his hearers because of, one, the content, and two, the form. Other rabbis quoted one another. Jesus claimed to quote God. That article uh, refers to passages in Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 4. Now, who is possibly more qualified than to represent the Father than the Son? Now, this statement that we've read in, in verse 16, it has profound implications and it demands or mandates a decision. The Jews are working hard to find fault with the Lord Jesus because they don't want to have to make a decision. They don't want to have to make a choice about what he is teaching. And if you think about it, this is a, a really a very common tactic, not just back then, but even now. Discredit the messenger to avoid having to take a stand, having to obey or reject his message. But this statement here by the Lord Jesus puts them really between a rock and a hard place. You know, regardless of whatever they thought about the Lord Jesus Christ, if the message, if the teaching were in fact from God, and we know that it is, then they were obligated to accept it and to obey it. That may be where you are today, perhaps trying to find fault with certain passages or certain apparent inconsistencies in the Bible, or perhaps trying to find fault with Christians because the message of the gospel is convicting, and you want to avoid having to make a choice, that is to accept or reject, to believe or not believe. A warning here, the Lord Jesus doesn't give up. He does not leave people on the fence or at the fork in the road. He will continue to bring the truth uh, before you. Uh, This may be one of the ways that he's doing that. He's bringing the truth before you to gently but firmly take you to making a decision, making a choice. So verse 16 is a controversial statement, and and the Lord Jesus knew that it would be challenged simply because the Jews were in the habit of challenging everything that he said and everything that he did. Um, And really, there's nothing wrong with challenging teaching. I don't think God expects us to accept and believe everything that we receive in terms of teaching without evidence. The error or sin in the case of the Jews, or in in our case, is if we persist in rejecting the truth or rejecting the, the teaching even after we do receive the, uh, the proof, the evidence. And that was where the Jews were. They had enough proof to believe, but they still continued to reject. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, uh, 1, verses 18 to 21, "...the wrath of God is revealed from heaven." against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So Jesus preempts the challenge that is coming by promising not one, but two uh, very solid assurances. Uh, The first is private 
and internal. The second is public and external. The promise of a private or internal assurance, you can read it, it's in verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or if I am speaking from myself. Now, I want you to notice that the assurance is not based on some knowledge gained through study or some intellectual ability that you have. There's no action that is needed to receive this assurance. It is given directly from God based on your commitment to obey the will of God. So what am I saying here? That we have to make a commitment to obey the will of God before we know whether the teaching, Jesus' teaching is from God? Well, sort of, but not, not exactly. Okay? There are all kinds of assurance that Jesus' teaching is directly from God. The miracles that he did for others, his own resurrection, all of these give us assurance. But verse 16 is a promise that when you are committed to do the will of God, when that is your will, he will give you internal and private assurance about the divine origin of that teaching. Now this is something that we know and experience as believers, and it comes out of our relationship with the Father. It's not something we can necessarily explain, but it is something that is consistent with the example that we see in the Lord Jesus. Remember what he said? John chapter 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And there's some other verses up there. Psalm 25, verse 12, and John 8, verse 31. I'll let you read them. These verses also reinforce the same thought that for those who are willing to do God's will, those who are desirous of, of seeking his will, that we will know, we will know and we will be confident that the teaching is from God. That's something that God promises. Now I want to share something that, that's sort of my opinion. This is something that a uh, conclusion that I came to based on my study of this passage and other passages. I believe there's a distinction between the words and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and the rest of Scripture, what's recorded for us in Scripture. Now, it's not my intent to be controversial here, and I'm certainly not in any way dogmatic about this. I am fully aware. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, uh, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, so that's all Scripture. We know the Holy Spirit inspired all of the biblical authors, there were probably about 40 of them, to write the Scriptures. And what they wrote was the word of, words of God. But here's one thing. Not everything those other men spoke and taught originated from God. In the case of the Lord Jesus, 100% of what he spoke and taught, every element of doctrine came directly from the Father. Now, the inspired men whom the Holy Spirit used 
to write scripture accurately communicated what was given to them, the, 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 the information, the teaching that was given to them. But I don't believe that they had complete understanding of exactly what they were communicating. Some perhaps had more than others. But one thing we know, in the case of the Lord Jesus, the, the Lord completely comprehended and understood the intent behind the message, what he was, be, what he was communicating. He fully grasped the objective of the communication. So I can't help but think that that adds some gravitas, some significance, or weight to what the Lord Jesus said, that it imposes a greater burden to hear and obey. We're told that this is the final revelation. There is no more revelation. What what the Lord Jesus spoke was the final revelation that came from God. Now, obviously, uh, the apostles did write... uh, portions of it based on what they had learned from the Lord Jesus, but the final revelation directly from God uh, came through the Lord Jesus. We've talked a little bit about private assurance. In addition to private assurance, the Lord Jesus also promises external or public assurance about the divine origin of his teaching. Uh, Take a look at verse 18 says, the one who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So who is glorified through the teaching that Jesus is presenting? Who received the honor and the esteem? The objective and true result of true or valid teaching is the Father's glory. And there's really two conditions that must be met for valid teaching. Uh, One, God has called or commissioned the teacher. In other words, they have been sent by God. And two, their goal in teaching is God's glory, not their own glory. Now, there are people in Jesus' time, and there are people today who have not been sent by God. And their objective is their own glory, not the glory of the Father. They are focused on broadcasting you know, their own agenda, their own viewpoints, their own philosophies, and they claim that those things come from God. In reality, they may not even know the Father. They may have no appreciation of his glory. Now, some of the Jews that were opposing and accusing the Lord Jesus were in that boat. They were not seeking the glory of the Father, at least not sincerely. The Lord Jesus addresses them in John chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. I have come in my Father's name, he says to those Jews, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You know, the Jews were blind to their thirst worldly glory. And as a result, they were opposing the one who was God manifest in the flesh, the one who had come from God. We need to be careful. The glory of the world is subtle and it's corrupting. It's addictive. It can divert our focus from the eternal glory that comes from God to chasing after the temporary and passing glory that comes from men. It can make you doubt the truth and believe what is false. The desire for that glory 
can make you question parts of the Bible that are considered unpopular. You can become selective about the portions of Scripture that need to be believed and obeyed. You may even begin to question God's motives, God's power. God may be speaking to you, but, but you become deaf to his voice. Here's a question that I think we need to ask ourselves and sincerely answer on a regular basis. Am I more focused on the honor or the glory that comes from men or with bringing glory to the Father? Let's go down to verse 19. Now in verse 19, sorry, Jesus starts talking about Moses. He says, it's not Moses giving you the law. Now this may seem like a tangent or a bit of a departure, but it really isn't. Now if you think about Moses, he is really the perfect example of the perspective of the attitude that the Lord Jesus is driving towards. The law that Moses gave to the nation of Israel did not originate with Moses. He was not the source. He was called and sent by God to deliver that law to the children of Israel. And what he did, he, he delivered accurately. Okay, that was what distinguishes a true prophet. Now Moses also diligently sought to protect and magnify the glory of God. Just one example we read about in Numbers chapter 14. Okay, Numbers chapter 14, starting in at verse 11. You can follow on the screen or you can follow in your Bible. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Does that sound familiar? Yes. I will strike them with their pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. If Moses was about his own glory, this is a perfect opportunity. But note how he responds. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land, They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man... Then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So the children of Israel had given Moses all kinds of grief, and no one would have blamed him if he had just kind of stepped aside when the Lord unleashed this judgment. But, but instead, he stands in the gap for them and refuses to allow God's glory to be tarnished. You know, it's the same thing with the Lord Jesus, okay? He was 100 focused 100% focused on the glory of God, and not at all on his own glory. I'd like to read for you some excerpts from an article that John Piper wrote on this topic on the Desiring God's God website. He says this, The heart of Christ's redemptive work in coming to earth in order to save sinners is that Christ came to be inglorious, 
for 30 years. He cites passages in Isaiah chapter 53. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He was despised and rejected by men. Piper goes on. He refers to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, Piper goes on. On the other hand, he came to represent God the Father. John 1 verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. Piper says this, In fact, seeing this glory, the beauty of the Father's power and goodness and wisdom and love, in and through the inglorious Jesus, seeing that was necessary for anyone to be saved. This is the glory that the Pharisees could not see, the glory of the inglorious Christ. The Lord Jesus emptied himself of any displays of outward glory. He emptied himself of his own glory so that the only glory that was visible in him was the Father's glory. Let me ask you, have you ever perceived the glory, this beauty of the Father's power and goodness and wisdom and love in and through the inglorious Lord Jesus? Have you ever realized that the one who was glorious behind, beyond all comprehension intentionally became inglorious? and died a humiliating death on the cross in order to pay for the forgiveness of your sins. Now go ahead and look at verse 19. Now in verses 19 to 23, the Lord Jesus exposes the dishonesty and hypocrisy of the Jews. He convicts them of prioritizing their own will above the will of God. And he gives two examples. The first one is a a willful intent to commit premeditated murder. Uh, Bible.org, website Bible.org says this, the law of Moses clearly prohibited premeditated murder. Yet this is exactly what the leaders were planning. So he convicts them on that. He says, you're trying to kill me. This is not consistent with the law of Moses. And then the second point that he makes is regarding the circumcision. Right? Now, circumcision was a special observance to the Jews. It kind of set them apart from the nations around them. It was a special mark that set them apart as God's chosen people. And it was meant to be performed on the eighth day after a, a child was born. Well, what happens if that eighth day happens to fall on a Sabbath? Well, the Jews chose to go ahead and conduct the circumcision. Now, based on the standard they had applied previously in John chapter 5 to the Lord Jesus, that was actually breaking the law of the Sabbath. But the Jews simply overlooked it. Okay? They exercised their discretion and prioritized observance of the circumcision ritual over the observance of the Sabbath. However, when it came to the Lord Jesus, they were not willing to allow him that same 
discretion. So Jesus rightly poses the question, you know, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath without breaking the law of Moses, is anger a rational reaction to a man being made totally well? If you're going to condone one violation, why are you condemning the other? The website Bible.org points out that this word, this Greek word angry, is the sense of righteous indignation. That's what the Jews were feigning, that they were standing up for God's law. They were being righteous by calling Jesus out for breaking the Sabbath. Hence Jesus' admonition in verse 24, Do not judge by the outward appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, now, Jesus captures the essence of the law in two commandments. Okay? And those are, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. That's the first commandment. The second one, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on this, all of the law and prophets hang. If you think about it, in, he- in healing this invalid man, right, the Lord Jesus is completely and perfectly fulfilling the law. He is displaying his love for God by demonstrating God's power, God's compassion, and he is displaying love for his fellow man by healing him. And the Jews really are doing the exact opposite. On the pretext of condemning the Lord Jesus for breaking the Sabbath, they're actually showing contempt for the love of God. They're showing contempt for God, they're showing contempt for their neighbor. We cannot get away from making judgments, right? The world that we live in is full of evil, and we have to separate ourselves from the evil. We have to judge and separate ourselves from the evil. And the Lord Jesus here is not telling the Jews not to exercise judgment. Rather, he's exhorting them, you need to make righteous judgment. You need to make right judgment. And he knows that if they did that they would acknowledge and accept and obey that teaching. So what about us? How do we make sure that we are judging righteously? Well, I suggest it goes back to verse 16. Verse 16 says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. That is the teaching, right? And he will know when it comes to judgment. Those who have a sincere desire to know and do the will of God consistently judge with right judgment. I think it also goes back to verse 18. He who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him is true. Those who are seeking their own glory are prone to judge according to external appearance. As a contrast, those who are devoted to God's glory are careful to judge in a manner that is consistent with his will, with his character. So what is your judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Of the Lord Jesus and his his teaching and the gospel which he presented. How would you honestly characterize that judgment? Is it sincere or is it biased? Now, only God and you know for sure Do you diminish or discredit the Lord Jesus or his followers to avoid making a decision about the gospel? 
Now, you can certainly find ways to rationalize rejecting the truth, but be careful. There are consequences of doing that. So my son and I are part of a scouting troop called Trail Life, and recently that troop traveled to Minnesota, to the Boundary Waters, uh, for a six-day canoe trip. Before that trip started, I had a chance to talk one-on-one with the owner of the outfitting company. His name was Dan Waters. He was kind enough to map out a very detailed route for us for our trip. He made recommendations about which lakes to travel on, where to camp each night. He also told us where to take portages. Uh, For those of you who are not aware, portage is where you have to carry all your gear. Uh, It's sort of hiking through the canoe trip. So you have to carry over your gear, you have to carry over the canoe. So he told us where to take portages to avoid the rapids. Now Dan had been outfitting groups uh, and, and canoeing the Boundary Waters for nearly 60 years. So you can bet I listened very carefully to his instructions and followed them closely because I had responsibility for my patrol, which was nine people. Now, that judgment resulted in a fairly safe and enjoyable trip for us. However, one patrol made a different decision. They had the same information. They were presented the same route, the same map. But when they came to one set of of rapids, they decided that they were going to skip the portage. From their vantage point at the top of the rapids, they, they, the rapids didn't look, you know, that bad. Uh, they figured, you know, it's just going to be much faster, much easier to just take the canoes down the rapids rather than having to carry them for more than a mile across this uh, portage. You know, that decision almost resulted in a catastrophe. Uh, one of the canoes was, was very seriously damaged. Fortunately, by God's grace, no one was injured. But that could have happened. Why did I mention this? Well, you know, ignoring instruction on earth has certain temporal and, and physical repercussions or consequences. But ignoring the instruction of the Son of God has very severe consequences. And they are not just physical. They are not just temporal. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says this, In the last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, God has told us, through his son, that we, we are separated from him because of our sins. And he has revealed to us how we can have our sins forgiven, how we can receive eternal life and enjoy an eternal relationship with him. There is no more authoritative source than God the Father. There is no more reliable channel than God the Son. Hebrews 2, verse 1 says this, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. 
And we'll close this morning with the words of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. I'd like you to think about this. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us this morning. Thank you that you have spoken through the Son, and you have given us the truth, the gospel, how we can know that our sins have been forgiven. Father, it's, it's through the cross, through recognizing the fact that when the Lord Jesus laid down his life at the cross, it was not for his sins, it was for my sins. And if I believe in him, if I trust in him as my Savior, if I receive the gift that he wants to give, that I could have eternal life. What a glorious thing that is. We thank you for the marvelous display of your love and compassion, your glory shown through the Lord Jesus Christ at the most despicable time. Pray that you would work in people's hearts this morning. Thank you once again in Jesus' name. Amen.